Hello, it's Nick, back once again. Not much for real intro chat this time, just a shout out to Trey Dunman for reminding me to actually get off my arse and record this. Uh, thanks Trey, and to mention that one of my mates told me to look at reviews on iTunes. Now there's not many, hint, hint, but there is one from a user called RBCountry2016, and uh, he's picking up the pod and suggesting that if you're after a sectarian show, uh, this pod just isn't for you. And I love that because it's incredibly hard enough or not to be labelled sectarian for just like reasons such as like history and legacy and all that kind of shit. So, but let's just get wired right into the action here after we obviously promote Twitter, which is at Arev History, and the Facebook page, which is Irreverent History. But here's the episode 016. I'm grieving, I'm grieving. To learn of the past, answers can't be asked. It's researching such a mystery. So I grab this podcast and I learn at last of Ulster's irreverent history. Yeah, that's not much to scooter putting on his raven shoes. And uh, also that I went grave touring with some mates. We also did the In Flanders Fields Marathon. This is kind of our tale. It's it's a little about the run, a lot more about the surrounding history of the West Hook. Mostly small stories of the people, you know, and the places and the graves that made our trip. Most refer back to our wee province of Ulster and to that of Greater Scotia, of course. But I hope you find them as fascinating as I did. There's so many cool stories of bravery and heroism, like camaraderie and, of course, beer, you know, the usual stuff. Plus an interview with a mysterious and majestic Dr. Potts, who we'll talk more about in a minute. Now, it does contain spoilers to previous episodes about World War One, but... I'm assuming you know the Allies won, so it's not that spoiler. Now, if you don't want any spoilers, you can listen to episode 004. And I'm not normally one to brag, but I have heard that some people say number four is our best episode. Uh, which you can kind of take as really high praise, or meaning that the rest have been a bit shit. But it's your call. I'm one of your guide. I can show you the doors, but it's up to you to walk through them. You know, to paraphrase Morpheus, sir. But anyway, grab a seat, strap in, and let's get cracking. So just like before when I was with my dad, you know, uh, me and Potty, who would remain my kind of main mugger for the trip, we headed out on the early flight from Dublin to Brussels. Now, it's not too bad as you can generally sleep in the flight, but this time we hired a car instead of getting trains and buses and taxis everywhere, right? And the description was a Fiat 500 or similar. You know, that got me all kind of metrosexual up. Thought I was going to have to wear mascara and splash on some fake tan or something. But yeah, it kind of gives a shitty little Ford Fiesta. The only similarities are the obvious ones that has four wheels and begins with an F, as did the word in my lips when they charged me extra for telling them I was going to drive to France. I mean, a tenner extra a day they charge us. Can you believe that? Even though I said that we were only going there on Monday and the Tuesday. I'm sorry, sir, but we won't be able to tell if that's the truth. We're, uh, that's the words of the lump behind the desk. You know, she's questioning my integrity, even though she's already lied about the car type. But, you know, I'm not one for trouble. And the military were sauntering about the airport and packing some serious heat. Now, Growing up in Ulster, you know, you'd always see the army patrolling about with like an SA-80 machine gun and all that Belfast cradle stuff. But these Belgians were carrying something with like a barrel that looked like it came straight out of Alex Higgins' snooker case. You know what I mean? So even though they're at least a few hundred metres away, I'm not for causing grief because they could pick you off no problem. So so I smiled at the woman and thought, no problem. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, I'm fully comp, mate. So see that chilly little Ford Fiesta's gearbox? It's getting the treatment. I am such a badass, aren't I? I so we got in the car and we started yakking, you know, like Potsy, who's like a kind of doctor of sorts, I'm not entirely sure where his degree comes from, but he's smart, you know, or he has a good memory, he's one of those people, but we haven't hung out in years apart from in Stag, he's like, so it was cracking to really catch up, you know, he's taller than I remember, and leaner, which is good, because he's, you know, going to be running the marathon, but he also had confidence that success brings, you know, he's one of your mates that's actually doing really well, which is good to see, but it's also kind of annoying too, but he's also got a laugh that's borrowed from the Bloodhound gang. 
Now he took charge of the music and I drove. I'm just sort of shot the shit for a bit. You know, his taste in music hasn't changed in years. You know, it's mostly rock from the 90s with a bit of like kind of trance just to spice things up. You know, he loves Tomorrowland and all that kind of jive. So at one point, everybody hurts by R.E.M. Come on. And just so we were getting into some casualties of World War One, chat, you know, friends do. It, it, it felt like a portent, like an omen, you know, but then it was into the Google Maps lady demanding a change lanes, which was nice. But we were heading to this place called Dick's Mead, which sounds like an X-rated drink from Harry Potter land, but it's where we had to sign in for the marathon. You know, on arrival, it, it was kind of dead. There was nobody about. We walked into this wee kind of warehouse and signed in. There was a few other people there, and it's incredibly difficult not to notice how, like, lean and weathered a skin, you know, the, the sort of smattering of other racers are. You know, it's a sure sign they can... It's a sure sign they can run, like, pissed down a pipe, you know what I mean? So, we just had a beer. Leffe Blonde, which is my weapon of choice for the weekend. You know, it was tasty and not gassy. And we just sat in the square, kind of people watching, or well, staring. There's only about 10 people, and you could see the statue in the distance. It was a guy called Jack Dismal, or, or General Jack Dismal, but we call him kind of Jack Off because you know, we're dead mature and stuff. But he's quite the hero here, and he was given a barony for his role in fighting Baxi Germans from the gates of the town during World War One. Even though by the time the fight was over, it was basically rubble, so it wasn't really worth taking or defending. But that's not really the point, is it? And it was rebuilt in the 20s, you know, probably using some of the German war reparations, and they did a cracking job. I mean, it's an odd little place itself. It's in line with the rest of Flanders. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a beautiful place. It's, like, really ornate. But they have the strangest customs, or, or at least they're strange to me and, and to Potsy. Nobody seems to get up before noon. I mean, it's like a massive student village, or, or maybe more like a ghost town, if you kind of pardon the analogy. All the houses have shutters, and the vast majority of them never seem to be open, like, ever. But it's cool, though, because we're just sitting in a bar outside in the town square, having a beer. Others were having coffee, and, you know, scones. It's just really civilised, you know. There's there's nothing crazy going on. The sun was shining. There was no clamour, no din, no mentals, no maniacs. Just us kind of sophisticates having a drink, well... All eight or so of us, plus the occasional old person cycling past on a really crappy looking bike with one trouser leg tucked into like an obviously always olive green sock. I had a bit of a laugh thinking that you know, if you tried this near us, it wouldn't last more than a few hours. You know, the hoods would get wind of it and the descend from the hills with their bottles of bucky and bad attitudes taps off and trouble in their eyes, you know. Or maybe I'm wrong, maybe they wouldn't, but you know, I'll not take the chance. And we just sort of mull that over a bit, you know, as we finished our half pints and headed to Aber, or more exactly towards the Tyne Cop Memorial. The way we were driving by, a complete chance, we drove past this memorial to Canada, and it, it was the first gas attack of the war. Potsy pointed it out, and within seconds I'd hit the anchors and took an emergency left. I think he was holding on to the bejesus handle by that stage, maybe screaming a wee bit. But now, I know Canada isn't in Ulster, but they did send thousands and thousands of troops to help secure the freedom of our ancestors, which I see as a pretty solid kind of thing to do. Pretty dead on of them, so they're kind of worthy of a mention here. The monument is in a place called St. Julian, where many Canadians fought and died. Many died. The, the monument is in St. Julian, where many Canadians where many Canadians fought and many died. Now, some even in the choking spasm of like a gas panic during the Second Battle of Ypres in spring 1915. The monument is called the Bruden Soldier. It's a whopping 11 metres high and it's made of pure granite, which is shipped in from the Vosges Mountains where German and French troops had a bit of a ding-dong. The monument is well named. I mean, it shows a soldier wearing a Canadian helmet, like eyes facing down, his hands resting on the butt of his upturned rifle, as if in reverence or possibly prayer. It's huge. It's mightily impressive. It's imposing even. The inscription on the memorial tells of how it marks the battle lines where 18,000 Canadians fought. 
That was on the 22nd and 24th of April 1915, and around 2,000 of them died, but less were buried. The names of those missing soldiers, the ones whose bodies they just could not find, are engraved in the men and gate neighbour, and the ones lucky enough to be found in a recognisable state are scattered throughout the multitude of graveyards that dominate the kind of surrounding area in the skyline. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be attacked by gas, like chemical weapons? You know, that's like Saddam Hussein stuff. You know, especially like the first ever attack. People just catching a scent in their nostrils, thinking, what dirty bastard was that? Davey, did you drop on again? Oh, poke me at that's rank. You know, it's really hitting my throat. And then you notice that people are turning red, choking, eyes starting to bulge, holding under their throats, unable to breathe, bent double, retching, writhing, keeling over, squirming frantically. And then just still. I mean, you hear stories during gas attacks of people panicking, unable to reach their own masks, losing all sense of humanity, so desperate to survive that they try to wrestle the gas masks from their friends and comrades. I mean, have you ever felt that feeling, where you would kill your friend just to end your pain? Me neither, but it happened, generally before an impending and horrifically painful death. There's one poem we studied at school, and... I'm sure many of you may know it instantly, but it has a line I'll always remember. An ecstasy of fumbling. And it sounds like something dirty you do to rave, but but in context of the rest of the poem, it speaks of the terror, that, that, that moment of instant fear when you hear the screams of gas, gas. Now, I reread the poem that we're seeing this in Julian Monument. I mean, good old Google, eh? And I'm not sure whether I'm just older or, or maybe more depressive by nature, or maybe it's just that I'm more invested now. And I know this sounds really pretentious, but... I felt that he understood it more. More so than when I was a teenager. You mean, imagine me trying to tell my 16 year old self that. You don't know everything, mate. Wouldn't have gone down well. But the poem's called Dulce de Coramest. It's by Wilfred Owen. It's Latin for It is sweet and honourable to die for one's country when uh, you add Pro Patria Mori in the end. Now, Owen was one of many World War I poets, and quite a few of them will be mentioned throughout this pod as they left their legacy, things people can grasp onto, relate to, mostly vivid descriptions and depictions of how feckin' horrific war was. They were the YouTube bloggers of their day, podcasters maybe, huh? Which is like, a, that's a highly transparent way of me trying to associate myself with them, you know? Me and Wilfred Owen, mate, you know, like two peas. But the poem is a strange power of inducing claustrophobia. Oh well, that's what it does to me. Makes me feel all uncomfortable and uneasy, which I suppose shows how good a poet Owen truly was. But he probably would never reach his potential as he wouldn't see the end of the war. He died a week before the armistice was signed, and his mother his mother received the notice by telegram on Armistice Day itself, whilst the town bells in Shrewsbury were pealing for victory. How horrific is that? War. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again, y'all. After the Britain soldier, we hit up the Tyne Cop Memorial. I mean, it was cool going back again. It was only my second time, but it seemed quite familiar. And I was keeping my papers on Posse to see what his reaction was. I mean, he was fascinated by the, the big weird dog that sits outside in one of the neighbouring gardens. But I was more focused on what he would think of the woman's voice. The kind of roll call of the dead. I mean, that's what freaked me out the most the first time. It comes from speakers in the crowd. No, both say no left, so... You know, the sound's crisp and clean, like, there's no messing about there. But I'd kind of forgotten just how eerie she sounded, how how unsettling, and how it's amplified as you enter the visitor centre with her voice echoing off the walls. Name and age. Name and age. Name and age. William Kerr Travis, 19. Alistair Keyes, 19. Thomas Key, 29. 
There was one kid who was only 14, but I lost his name as I noticed the screen. And I was showing photos to go with the voices, you know, faces for the dead. I wondered if Great Uncle Jimmy's name would be called, if there would be a photo. But what millions of men and women to work through, it could be a long, long wait. Is it selfish to want your relative to be announced? Or is it just human nature? It's weird, but that feeling or question, it was like a constant of the trip and it would bug me a bit, that kind of feeling of selfishness. I'll come back to it later, but I'm hoping I'm not the only one to feel that way. Now we walked about the exhibition and it was the same as the previous year, but I noticed more. There was a quote about a soldier called John Lowe from his widow, and it takes a different slant on the glory of war. She said, The thought that Jock died for his country is of no comfort to me. His memory is all I have left to love. Gets you right in a ticker, doesn't it? We know about the country winning as a whole, but how many people lost individually? Obviously John Lowe's wife did. Millions others. Grieving. Grieving for millions dead. The main memorial or like graveyard, it's a brief walk away from the kind of visitor centre and we chatted about death, you know, which directions the Germans would come from, where their lines of battle were, what the site would have looked like and it was cool because Potsy was really starting to enjoy himself without wanting to sound disrespectful there. I mean, I set him the task um, to try and help with this and to build up his kind of interest. I set him the task of finding a grave to an unknown soldier of the Royal Irish Rifles. And it, it was mainly so I could make a post about Jamesy, saying how it could be him. And it was weird because that selfish feeling loomed over me. You know, it's kind of, it's weird when you're walking around those grave sites and you're thinking, all these people here are trying to be respectful and I'm just trying to find one to make a post about. It just feels odd. But on the flip side, it led the thoughts about DNA tests. I was wondering, is there a way to subtly examine all the corpses in the grave? You know, those unknown soldiers? Could they now be known soldiers? Would it even be possible? I mean, could the graves be tested? So, I googled it. Firstly, to see how many were unknown in the time count. They come back with a whopping 60-70%. to 70%. And then it was for the tests. And you only really get sad stories about families providing their DNA, but it not bringing any actual success. And invariably, they were, they were obviously disappointed with these results. And I don't know exactly what's involved, but another trusty Google search told me that the bones were one of the best sources of DNA. So... I was kind of thinking about emailing your man Baldrick from Time Time, seeing if he'd do a special for us. So, if you got a time, email him too and we'll see if we can crack him. But getting back to the gravestones, you have some that have personalised inscriptions with gone but not forgotten being quite common or um, thy will be done. But for the unknown soldiers, they all seem to have known unto God, which comes from Rudyard, which comes from Rudyard Kipling. My God, it's hard to say it. Rudyard Kipling, he of the Jungle Book fame whose son John disappeared at the Battle of Luce in 1915. In Australia, they wanted to take God out of the picture, and we're going to change it from Kipling's words to the slightly mouthier, we do not know this Australian's name, we never will. Which I'm kind of annoyed about, because that kind of spits in the face of my DNA theory. But they didn't actually change it, so that's good. But there's also one we came across for 2nd Lieutenant W.A. Stanhope Forbes, to give him his full title. He died early in September 1916, attached to the Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry, and the quote says, He saw beyond the filth of battle, and thought death a fair price to pay to belong to the company of these fellows. And that's kind of cool, isn't it? You have a different viewpoint in the horrors and nightmares that so many others seem to suffer. A guy that just cherished the camaraderie of his companion soldiers. I like that. It kind of almost gives you hope, doesn't it? So, we were there. Um, we were quite sombre. 
quiet, respectful, and as we dandered about the graveyard, you know, even the Americans were quiet, it was, it was quite fascinating. It's like nobody wants to make a noise. It's a strange feeling of, of group reverence. And Potsy, sharpest kid, in that kind of silence, he whispered to me, what about the generals? And all those guys that died, and I had no answer. And we looked around, and all the graveyards seemed to be filled with commoners and riflemen and lance corporals, maybe the odd sergeant, but you know, just a rank and file, no big dogs. And I didn't know the answer to what he said. Like I kind of glibly said, well, maybe the ranks just didn't die. I mean, they were too far away from the fighting, or if they were captured, they were just treated to wine and cheese while the rest got shot. Now, I know that the Commonwealth Grave Commission don't discriminate, not in rank or race or creed, but we didn't really see many graves with high rankers in Tynecott. But there is one officer that we did find somewhere else, and we'll mention him later. War. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again, y'all. So from Eber, we headed to Messine, or or Mezen, the Battle of Messine, that of the underground mines fame, with the biggest man-made explosion right up until the atomic bomb. It was a tremendous victory for the Irish. Not just in outright battle terms, being that it was a comprehensive victory, but also in the respect of the largely Catholic and Nationalist 16th Division, and mostly Protestant and Unionist 36th Ulster Division fought side by side, and this is remembered in the Island of Ireland Peace Park. Island of Ireland Peace Park, by the way, isn't that mad that it just can't be called the Irish Peace Park? If it was, though, some people would think that it's all just free staters and mightn't get near the place, and others would think, good, keep those planter bastards out. Just room for proper patties in our peace park. On that, someone referred to me as a planter on social media a while back. I get cold washed by the kids, to be fair. Still cried, though. Now, there's a round tower in Messine, just like the one in Antrim or Dungannon or Glendalock in County Wicklow. It's a cool memorial. Four pillars with the names of the four provinces inscribed on them, and they face towards the tower. And set just behind these, there are three more pillars that refer to the divisions. And... I know when you speak about divisions in Ireland, you generally mean divides, but here we actually mean army-style divisions, the 10th and 16th Irish divisions, and the 36th Ulster. The pillars show the vast death toll, I mean the sacrifice made by Irishmen, close to 70,000 dead from 300-odd thousand that served. I'll put some pictures on Facebook and Twitter to show you, and there's also an area with quotes of poets and soldiers inscribed in marble, like gravestones. Kettle is there, and so is Ludwig. Tom Kettle was a Nationalist MP, a Professor of Economics in UCD, and supposedly a bit of a drinker. Though it seems he was a pleasant and romantic drunk and genuinely felt that the war might actually bring Unionists and Nationalists together, which I find strange, as he incredibly witnessed the Germans invading Belgium firsthand. And you may go, what's strange about that? Well, he was there in 1914 buying guns for the Irish Volunteers. Who were the guys who would go on to become the IRA? And of course you would know that if you'd listened to the last pod. So be honest, did you know that? <laughs> well, conversely, this galvanises anti-German sentiment more than his anti-British feeling. And he wanted the Germans to get out of Dodge. Though he may have regretted signing up as he was annoyed at missing out on Easter Rising. He died in Genshi, part of the Somme offensive, possibly killed as the quote, mad guns curse overhead. He wrote that. And I'm a bit annoyed because I totally forgot to go to his graveside. But I was tired and hungover, so forgive me. As for Ledwidge, we'll talk about him in a minute, so fear not. But of all the chosen inscriptions, my favourite, if favourite is the right word, is from Charles Miller of the 2nd Royal Enniskillen Fusiliers. He says, quote, 
As it was, the Eber battleground just represented one gigantic slough of despond into which floundered battalions, brigades and divisions of infantry without end to be shot to pieces or drowned, until at last, and with immeasurable slaughter, we had gained a few miles of liquid mud. Isn't that just the antithesis of hope? Really paints an horrific picture of the battlefield conditions. That term, one gigantic slough of despond, just evokes a hell of a drastic image. Or maybe just hell itself. Near the entrance of the Peace Park is a, a big bronze plaque and it is inscribed with a peace pledge. Quote, From the crest of this ridge, which was the scene of terrific carnage in the First World War, on which we have built a peace park and round tower to commemorate the thousands of young men from all parts of Ireland who fought a common enemy, defended democracy and the rights of all nations, whose graves are in shockingly uncountable numbers, and those who have no graves, we condemn war and the futility of war. We repudiate and denounce violence, aggression, intimidation, threats and unfriendly behaviour. As Protestants and Catholics, we apologise for the terrible deeds we have done to each other and ask forgiveness. From the sacred shrine of remembrance, where soldiers of all nationalities, creeds and political allegiances were united in death, we appeal to all people in Ireland to help build a peaceful and tolerant society. Let us remember the solidarity and trust that developed between Protestant and Catholic soldiers when they served together in these trenches. As we jointly thank the armistice of 11th November 1918, when the guns fell silent along this western front, we affirm that a fitting tribute to the principles for which men and women from the island of Ireland died in both world wars would be permanent peace. Now the first initial sentence could have done with a few full stops, but the sentiment is there. It doesn't say who wrote it, though I asked Arlene Foster, but she couldn't recall, which is in stark contrast to Sinn Féin, who actually, they claimed it did it just after setting up the civil rights movement. But what I do know is that the park itself was a collaborative effort of two men. One was Paddy Hart, who's a Fianna Gael MP, which is a political party in Ireland, and a man named Glenn Barr, who is a former UDA commander from Derry which is a paramilitary party in Northern Ireland. Both share a will and a wish that everyone should know about all Irish troops that had contributed so much in the Great War, which quite nicely embraces the cultural divides in Ireland, working together rather than being dicks to each other, and parallels beautifully with how victory was achieved side by side at Messine. As we're getting back in the car, uh, I feel you know, we're both feeling a little up and eager for more and I heard some guy jumping out of his car and pleading with his wife, ah for fuck's sake love, just give me 10 minutes to pay my respects would ye? Proper Belfast tones it was, it was class, we taste a home there, never too far away at all. But on that note, on the road to Kemmel, about 10 minutes drive from the Peace Park, where the Irish 16th and Ulster 36th marched, comrades in arms, there's a memorial, well two, one on either side of the road, one is for the 16th and one to the 36th, or so they say. But yeah, I only found out about this when I got home, so I have no photos, nor do I have any for the memorial to the Irish 16th at Whiteshite Military Cemetery, which I may be mispronouncing, but I can assure you it's probably not on purpose. But it's just going to be huffing a little bit, because I missed it, so I don't really care. Though, if you Google it, you can find him, because I won't, because I'm huffing, still. But another reason to go back, eh? 
Anyway, so we checked in after spending ages looking for a parking space because there was a big festival on that night. We had to park miles away, it seems, so that was cool. But once all that was done, we headed to the square and talked about a shit for an hour or two over a few beers or half pints, as we would call them back home, and then went to get some kit before the marathon. I mean, it seems easy, doesn't it? But I was woken up dramatically by someone sawing through a redwood at the foot of my bed, which actually turned out to be potsy snoring like a fattened hog with hay fever. After a few minutes of, what the hell are I threw a pillow at him, and incredibly it worked. He snuffled a little, snorted a little, and rolled onto his side, but mechanically he was short-lived as the throaty tones of the big unit had been masking the festival that was blasting away in the background. Oh, woe was me, it was like the last thing I remember, but you know, kind of drifted off, so it was fine. Then it was Marathon Day, yay! Part two of my trilogy. And what sold me about Ian Flandersfield's Marathon was this, quote, Runners from around the world are expected to compete across the battlefields of World War One. Sold, thank you. But it's a slight misnomer, as I didn't get to see much World War One stuff. Now, maybe a proper historian would have known what they were looking at, but not a ball-back pretender like myself. Now, maybe it's a fault of my hopes and dreams, but my head would be running past graveyards and battlefields, old cannons and tanks, general war stuff, and I would be awed by it all when it was really just a very lonely run around the countryside and down canal ways. And as I described it to some, most of the time it was like running down the Lisburn towpath. To say I was disappointed would be unfair, on the term disappointed. Now, you do pass the vividly entitled Trench of Death, a place where attritional warfare took place between the Franco-Belgians and the Germans, sometimes mere yards from each other, and it made me smirk at the irony that it is barbed wire now protecting the site itself. There's also a Peace Tower, or Iser Tower, to commemorate the Flemish who died in World War One, It was impressive, really impressive, and had the words Pax emblazoned on the front of the arch in big letters. That translates as peace, so they, they get called the Paxport or Peace Gates. But to my knowledge, that was pretty much it for the history. There are so many monuments and memorials around that it has such potential, but I've never organised a marathon, and I have no idea what it takes, so I hope I'm not sounding too harsh. It's just it was a really nice day, it was warm, it was sunny, and there were so many lonely, long expanses, with barely a soul near you as the runner started to stretch out. Though, I've got to say, as we approached the kind of final 10k, and I started hitting the wall, there was a lot more company. Well, only briefly, as all the people that I kind of passed earlier, inwardly thinking to myself how slow they were and how awesome I was doing, uh, well, they just kind of kept, you know passing me and looking really strong as I kind of trundled home like a tank with no tracks, you know what I mean? I had to revise my time constantly for, after about 17 miles, it was horrific, but the relief of seeing the men in gate kind of stirred some life back into me, and that, that was like right on the final stretch. It's hard to articulate how I felt, I wanted to feel honoured to be running through the gate, but all I felt was slightly less despair, especially as the course curved away from the cloth over and knew the race was the finish, but it was luckily it was only a small detour and soon the finish line kind of like inched into view. Now I'm not ashamed to admit it, but it felt horrific, like truly broken, beaten and busted up, but it did feel better when I looked at everyone else feeling the same. I mean, I lay down in the kind of shade on the cold pavement for maybe 10 minutes and then I fished out my phone, jotted down some memories, getting really irritated at Spellchecker for correcting like all of my swear words. And then I hold myself up and I looked at my medal. I had finished the course, which in our previous, I thought was a major doubt. But I did it in just under four hours, which was a PB for me. So I'm kind of happy with that. So I did what any sensible person would do and I headed for a beer, holding my swag, two new t-shirts that both look epic, by the way. And I started immediately to kind of rewrite my feelings for the race. You know, it was over 
I was done. I could relax, slightly sore but ready to eat and drink. As I sat there, like alone at the bench waiting for my friends to arrive, I wondered if it was similar to how a soldier felt. Drained after a day in the field, yet relieved to still be in one piece. They obviously, in being slightly facetious, I didn't lose any friends enemy gunfire if they killed people with my bare hands or have to bayonet some guy in the belly because the king felt differently to mine, but there are parallels. Maybe to one day in a soldier's life, you know, like fatigue, doubt, resilience, joy. These are all emotions and states I'd been through. But I suppose it was over for me. They would have had to do it all again, possibly the next day or the next hour, or maybe even right there and then. Like, it's this really sobering thought. So I decided to get on sober. I was in a few beers time and when swapping stories with my mates and fellow runners that I began to feel a bit of pride, not just to complete in the race, but at doing it in the honour of my great uncle Jimmy. I mean his name was worn proudly across my chest throughout the run. Maybe he knew some of the men whose names had run under in the men and gate. Certainly he would have known many whose names were in the time cot. And this was for his memory. A man of nineteen, half my age, but haven't seen much, much more than I ever will see. Now talking about that, um, the drinks after my mate Doug was saying that it was coincidentally his 36th marathon and his 12th that year I think having just done Dublin and with New York still to go this weekend. New York being the return of the Jedi of my trilogy except there'll be no remakes, no sequels, no none of that. And if it's Doug's 13th then hopefully that's unlucky for him as I'd really love to beat him, you know what I mean? Just for bragging rights of course but it's never going to happen unless I employ the dark arts, you know, which is a former rugby flanker I'm not averse to but it's way easier to cheat at rugby than it is at running, so... I'll have to give it some thought. Anyway, we're having some drinks after, right? Doug's wife and parents were over, and they wanted to experience the last post of the men in gate, especially the bugler that we talked about you know, way back in episode 5. So we set our asses down at the Apron Inn, right in the corner by the gate, exactly where me and my dad, you know, Henry, had shared a few pints the year previous. It's a really good spot. After a few beers, and with the energy kind of returning to your souls, you know, we were just chatting about wars you're doing. Doug's mum told us of a relative she had that died nearby, but she'd never been able to find any information on him. His name was Patrick Cunningham, and as she turned to respond to Harry, who's her husband, who was blaming her for them taking four hours to get from Newport and the coast to Aper, a journey that shouldn't take 45 minutes, I'd already found Patrick in his grave. It turns out he wasn't fighting in Belgium, but in France, and was buried near Pas-de-Calais, about 70k to the southwest. If you're thinking, whoa, how'd you do that? You some kind of World War One grave expert, a soothsayer of sorts? Well, no, I'm not. But I know people who are experts, that is, not soothsayers. But it's a Commonwealth Graves Commission. And I use their website. It's an absolute belter. Really good for tracing relatives from the war. All Margaret, who's Doogie's Mac, gave me was his name and his place of birth. And we found him and his final resting place. So if you yourself want to start somewhere, I'd start right there. It's really good. CWGC, Commonwealth Graves Commission. Just Google it and select Find a Board Aid and you'll be able to find something on them. And if you're lucky, they may have loads of info. And while we're talking about them, I have to say how great a job they do. Not just with the website, but with the graveyards and the headstones and the information placards are most sites. They take really great pride and care in what they do. And everything just looks so clean and tidy, so welcome and well as welcoming as a graveyard can be, but it really is impressive. I mean, I'm not sure if it's a one-man show, just some guy bombing about in his ride-on flymo cutting all the grass, but I doubt it. I do know that they were the brainchild of Sir Fabian Arthur Gulstonware, Fabs, I like to call them, and they really deserve a big mention, as they do a cracking job. Anyway, I'm not sure if you've done a marathon before, but you get pretty tired, and we had plans to get lit in April, you know, but it was Sunday night in a sleepy town, and I was in bed by 10, and had an absolute wonder sleep. 
got up around about half nine the next day, limped into town to get some grub, but it was a beaut day again, and off we headed in the direction of Thiepville in France. Well, sort of, on the way back to the car, we walked past the Monster Monument, which was erected by the people of its capital city, Court, and is in memory of all the many fought from the land of Brian Beru, and had a flashback the night before. The monument was written in French, English, and Irish, so, um... Being a wee bit well-oiled, I thought it was a good idea to tweet a copy of the Irish and tag Sinn Féin and the DUP into it and challenge them to translate the um, language. But it must be a tough one, though, because I'm still waiting the response. I'm sure I'll get it any day soon. But I also have a challenge for you. How many famous willies can you name? I'll help you out here. There's Willie John McBride, Willie Nelson, Willie Wonga. It's just a few for starters. But don't Google that question and work as you can't be sure what those search results will turn up. But I'm going to tell you about two famous World War Willies. And the first was Father Willie Doyle. Now, due to a spate of recent scandals, when I hear the word father before someone's name, generally my first reaction is to ensure that my kids are alright. But this one, he actually seems to be in a good egg. At 42, yes, 42, he signed up as a Catholic chaplain to the British Army's 16th Division. The home, home rulers of sorts. He felt that if anyone needed God, it was those poor Irish souls in the battlefield. And he was probably right. But far from being just a comfort for the clan Catholic, it seemed that he was mates with everyone. And they were all mates with him. Aside from his prayer sessions, he also showed a Jesus-like devotion to saving the lives of the sorry souls he stood beside. If you took a bullet and Willie was close by, he would come and drag you back to the trenches. Or maybe lie beside you telling stories as you drifted away. There's even anecdotes about soldiers fighting to get into the same trenches, Willie, as he never seemed to get hurt, despite regularly being out in the battlefield, like a kind of Colonel Kilgore, or, or maybe someone was actually watching over him, eh? Ooh. Now, it's not clear who said this, but it's reported as an unidentified Protestant officer, and the sentiment is cool, so we'll use it. Quote, but it was said that, Father Doyle never rests. Night and day he is with us. He finds a dying or dead man, does all, comes back smiling, makes a little cross and goes out to bury him, and then begins all over again. That kind of does make him seem a little creepy, doesn't it? Happily whistling while he works away with a collection of casualties. But I think we can give this particular priest the benefit of the doubt. He's just a little eccentric. And here's another mildly strange story to add weight to that. Apparently there was one night in the trenches with no bed or blankets for the troops and Willie was forest gumping it up, shuttling the casualties back and forth so rapidly that the doctor, already overwhelmed by the workload, swooned with tiredness. He was replaced by another but was still unable to rest soundly in the damp dirt. Willie, aware of the, like the doctor's importance, saw an opportunity and lay face down in the floor, instructing the exhausted doctor to rest a while upon his back. Now, I've never slept on a man. Not that there's anything wrong with it, just not what I'm into, but even if it is your thing, I'm not sure it would be that much more comfortable than the ground itself. Not to mention feeling a little weird. Here, mate, can you just lie down there in the muck so I can use you as a mattress? But, sure, it's a nice story, isn't it? And it serves a purpose, and Willie probably deserves a full podcast all to himself, such were the acts and deeds he undertook. And yes, I know he's also not from Ulster, but... He would have aided many from the province and provided great comfort and consolations to those in their dying moments. They say he was one of the most fearless men you could ever meet. And I always wonder, is it a lack of fear or just an incredible amount of bravery? Bravery to conquer those fears? Kind of like when I got up the ladder the other night to clean the gutters despite my absolutely horrific vertigo. But you know, I just manned up, got on with it. Hard as nails, mate. Just like Willie. Now Willie, Willie was at the Somme. 
Messin and Passchendaele. And it was on the 16th of August 1917 that he took on one challenge too much. He went out to rescue two men during the Battle of Langmark. The same battle where my great uncle Jimmy was killed. And again I can't help but wonder if he was one of the two men while he tried to help. As we know that the 36th and 16th fought side by side there as well. The trio were struck by artillery shells and scattered across the earth. Now I'm not sure you don't if you follow Adarev history on Twitter. Uh, if not, why not? But we posted some photos of a new signpost that's been recently erected. It's called the Long Road of Passchendaele. Ireland remembers or Community Era to appease the ILA activists out there. You know who you are. It also has the distance in miles from that very spot to each of the four provinces of Ireland, and also Passchendaele itself and Messine Ridge. 451 miles I was from my beloved Ulster. There's also a rock with two plaques on it. A bronze plaque to remember the Irishman that fought at Langmark and Fresenberg Ridge. And the other is the Big Willie. Such was the impact he made in his contemporaries and also throughout the ages that he is still being recognised and remembered over a century after his death. On the bronze plaque there is also a poem called A Soldier's Grave by Francis Ledwidge, who we mentioned earlier. And he was also killed by a German shell. War. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again, y'all. So it was to Francis's grave that we set our trusty steeds next, and a chance coincidence would make me all emotions, my ten-year-old little terror would say. In between the course of Dad, you're so lame, and what's the other one? Uh, oh yeah, give me money. On the journey between Willie's Rock and Lebage's grave, by way of the Douchey Farm Memorial, which is not me deriding the memorial, by the way, that's its actual name, we drove past something that I recognised, but a deja vu. It's something that many Belgian farmhouses have, but this one sent a jewel right through me. It's a little religious hut at the entrance lane to a farm, but this one I recognised instantly. And as we drove past, we slowed down and my suspicions were confirmed when I saw the large munition shell outside with the pawn farm written on it. It's there, that's the general location where my great uncle Jimmy possibly still lies. So I took a second and then drove on to see Francis's grave. On the 31st of July 1917, Francis Ledwidge and a few pals from the battalion of the Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers were laying planks in the morass, prepping the ground for an assault near the village of Bazinga, northwest of Weber. Like most poets, Ledwidge preferred smoking and drinking tea to actual hard graft, so he was kind of sitting in a mud hole with his comrades when they heard the whistle. But this was not a whistle of a singing kettle, but of a shell dropping from high above. It erupted its pregnant payload and killed the poet and five other men. A chaplain who knew him, Father DeVos, upon his arrival at the scene, recorded a rather less poetic but more succinct report than maybe Ledwidge would have appreciated. It read, Ledwidge killed, blown to bits. As a nationalist he joined up, as he didn't want to take the freedoms he believed his enlisting would achieve on the back of another man's work. Very noble, isn't it? But it reminds me of that scene in Platoon when King, Crawford and Taylor are cleaning out the latrines and King asks how the educated Taylor got posted to Vietnam. Quote, I volunteered, he said. I figured, why should just the poor kids go off to war and the rich kids always get away with it? King replies with, oh, I see, what we got here is a crusader. And that's what he sounds like. Many were, as I'm sure you know, they were sold in a grand dream, backed by Christmas and all that. You can change the world. But they would soon find out that war was not all that had been promised. This feeling is reflected in the morphing of his poetry from poetry. 
homes of fields and birds back home to taking on a more melancholy element. It seems like war changes a man. They have to admit, I'm not a massive fan of his work, but loads of others are, so just between us I pretend they am, so look smart and fit in with the bourgeoisie, as it was them, I think, that pushed for his memorial, being on the actual spot of his death, which is maybe just a few hundred metres from his final resting place. We visited, paid our respects, and snapped a pic that manages to get both the grave and the memorial in one shot, as long as you kind of squint and look real hard. And again, I know he's not an Osterman, but he is famous, and there's so he's worth a visit. Also, if you're a fan of the Easter Rising, his epitaph may be of interest as it reads, He shall not hear the bittern cry in the wild sky where he is laying. Which is from a poem he wrote about his mate Thomas McDonough, who died during the rebellion. So we hit the road again, heading towards the land of the Franks, my trusty co-pilot and co-marathon runner, whose navigational instructions can be summed up by the quote, Fuck up and drive straight till I tell you different which is Potts Equip number one, was burrowing himself in World War One detail. I kept seeing him googling battles and people that we had just been talking about or visiting. I wouldn't put it past him to be fact-checking what I was saying, but he seemed to be actually buying into the trip, investing, getting a bit emotional, but at the end of the day I feared he would be a weeping mess, more puddle than man. Potts Equip number two. And this pleased me greatly, not in some sick and twisted only happy when it rains kind of vibe, but because I didn't want to feel like I was dragging him across two different countries and multiple cemeteries just so I could get my historical boner on. It's not exactly a fun trip in a sense. It's sombre as hell at times. But the banter will always spill out if you're with mates, which is exactly what you need as it does start to affect you. Especially as we got tighter for time and had to bypass cemeteries without paying respects, almost like they weren't worth it. That's what it felt like, but it's just like there's so many. You end up picking and choosing and it feels a bit off, but... What can you do? You only have a few days. You're like Kiwis in this one. Now no, we've seen if quite a few of those, but there's South Africans in this one. I'm sure the, the place we just left had them and we've seen them. I mean, it's almost as if it becomes normal, like seeing all the graves. And I wonder if that's how the locals feel. Not really giving the white stone slabs a second look these days. And it's hard not to, I suppose. And while we're on this case, I'll tell you a game me and Potsy played. We would go into a graveyard, pay our respects, and then try and guess how many gravestones there were before Googling it to see who was closest. Now, he pretty much won every time, as I would guess on Phil, whereas he would go all kind of like Pythagoras and count rows and columns and do maths like a proper tool. I mean, I didn't beat him once, like, so I suppose there is a merit to his methods. War. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again, y'all. Our next stop was to find another big Willie, Willie Redmond this time, and we'll talk about his relationship with a certain John Meek. Willie Redmond was a home ruler, brother to John Redmond, who was the home ruler, a sitting nationalist MP, but Willie signed up to be a major in the British Army at 56 years of age. 56? Some of you may know this story, it's quite famous I think, but old Willie was going over the top with his troops during the, day, during the opening day of the Battle of Messine when a bullet struck him down. John Meek, an orangeman and UVFer, was hanging out in no man's land with a stretcher at the ready when he clocked Redmond writhing on the ground and went to his aid. Now you have to remember that it's a full-on battlefield. He's not just dandering around a park with a stretcher. He was commando rolling through shell holes and tucking up behind cadavers, but he eventually reached Redmond and managed to bandage him up before getting hit himself. Willie ordered Meek to leave him to die, to get himself to safety, but Meek retorted with a classic Ulster bouncer quip of, Not the night. Meek hit again under sustained gunfire, still refused to leave Willie's side. The two were later found by comrades and brought to safety, but Willie, possibly due to his age, did not survive long. Meek 
didn't see him pass away as he demanded to be patched up ASAP and go back into the fray looking for further survivors, eventually being awarded the military medal for his incredible efforts. He would survive everything that the war threw at him and returned to be a gardener in County Andrum. But to show just how much of a bastard life can be, he would die of tuberculosis only a few years later, aged 28. As we've talked about before though, pre-World War I Ireland was at boiling point. Home rule was about to be introduced and the North was arming itself for civil war. Interestingly, the propaganda in Ireland during these years of home rule and later partition wouldn't have been so different to that of propaganda between the sure and true and honourable Brits and those nasty bastard Huns. I know not the lovely Rangers fans, we're talking about the Germans, Old Jerry and their leader Kaiser Bill, which when translated into English is King Billy, which is probably why the Irish signed up in their masses. But we all know what propaganda is for, don't we? It's to make you despise and dehumanise the other side. Like so many have tried to do in Ireland between all the communities. For their own ends, invariably. It makes people less likely to care. And why would you care if the other side are dirty bastards that would eat your heart the very first chance they could get? And some people might say, no, not me. I'm too clever or woke to be caught up by propaganda. Well, let's take the movie Top Gun as an example. Crack and movie. Now, and if you haven't seen it, then I'll just have to drop in a must. What? But I'll just assume everyone has. And therefore, you can all answer this. Did you care when the Russian Megs got shot out of the sky at the end of the movie? Did you care for the pilots? Did you worry for their families? I'll answer for you. No. Why? Because they wore dark visors. You couldn't see their eyes. You couldn't bomb them. They didn't have pictures of their kids in their cockpits. You couldn't empathise with them. There was no topless volleyball or chasing Kelly McGillis because you're dangerous. No, not for them. They had no backstory. She did not care. There was no rapport built. But when Goose died in the black spin, Christ, the night. I'm always crying now thinking about it. Well, that's propaganda. Subtly manipulating you into their way of thinking. Clever girls, eh? And that's why I think a story should get so much attention. Held up as an example of how the two sides of the main divide can work together. Apart from the fact that it's also a story of immense bravery and camaraderie in its own right. So repeat after me. Orange and green, side by side in the scene. That's positive propaganda, I suppose. Though, maybe it's just me, but I also wonder about the inverse of that. Were there any diehard unionists or republicans that did let their comrades die due to their differences? I really hope not, but I'll bet there were. I mean, talking so much tribe there, they almost kind of forgot the point. We were at Big Willie's grave in Lochra, and he's just chilling like a villain on his own, just a few metres away from the other soldiers. And now it's not because of any sense of self-importance or station, but because he was buried there before the Commonwealth grave was formed, and his widow wanted his remains left as they were. You know, Willie had it in his will that men from both the 16th and the 36th Divisions would provide his guard of honour. Upon his death, as seems to be de rigueur, his family went through his private things, letters, diaries, etc. So word of the wise, don't be writing anything you don't want your kids to read in your Facebook or WhatsApp DMs, eh? But one thing of note that they found was that Big Willie had an old mucker called Arthur Conan Doyle. He of the no-shit Sherlock fame. And he had penned a letter to him saying that it would be a fine memorial to the men who have died so splendidly if we could, over their graves, build a bridge between North and South. And it was this lack of sectarianism within... Willie, that was his legacy. And this is confirmed 96 years later, in 2013, when Enda Kenny, the Irish Taoiseach, and David Cameron, the British Prime Minister at the time, laid wreaths together at his graveside. As we mentioned earlier, Willie was still a sitting MP during the war. He briefly appeared at Westminster before his death and asked the following question to the rich war dodgers that looked at him from the benches of the Parliament. Why must it be? 
that when British soldiers and Irish soldiers are dying side by side, this eternal quarrel must go on. Now that's about the Irish question of home rule. And it's it's poignant it's a poignant query as it draws parallels with today's issues, especially the question of the Irish border and the EU. This briefly crossed my mind as we kind of traversed the border between Belgium and France and all of a sudden we were in a different country. It's just like when you go from Northern Ireland to Southern Ireland. What? What do you mean that'll annoy some people? It is a different country. What do you mean that'll annoy people more? Yeah, I am only joking these guys. Trigger points, eh? If you forgive the pun. So, Paddy Cunningham. Remember him? That's my mate's mum's uncle that died in France. So when her way to thief will be called into Paddy Calais that took photos for her. The grave was slightly different and that was attached to a civilian graveyard. But it shows like the stark contrast between how the dead are remembered. In France the war dead get a small wooden cross. No unit nor epitaph. Just a cross with their name if it is known. Yet their civilian dead have the most ornate graves you could imagine. Mausoleums and marble everywhere. It's almost like a museum with statues and busts. And lots of overt religious artefacts. Compare this to the graves I see around Ulster. Sedate. Understated, reserved almost, yet the Commonwealth war graves definitely have the edge in style and substance over the wooden crosses. Now this is not a slight on the French by the way, far from it. It's just basically a comment so I could try and seem smart by using the word juxtaposition to contrast the appearance of the grave sites. We then headed for the Ulster Tower. As you drive there you can see the Thiefel Memorial on the horizon. Poking through some trees and really it looks magnificent. At the crossroads in town we headed for the Ulster Tower first and to pay a visit to the Connaught Cemetery, Millwood Cemetery and Thiefel Wood. Thiefel Wood is from where the Ulster 36th led their assault on the Schwatten Redoubt, a reputedly unassailable fortress that, just like the Titanic, kind of regretted giving itself that reputation as the Ulsters smashed right through it. You know the story if you've listened before, it's, it's a great tale of bravery and determination with a wee, a wee bit of insubordination in there as they kind of well, they followed the main battle plan, they added their own wee bits and spices, and that's how they did so well, but the story ends in great sadness, and it, it becomes more about the massacre of so many men desperately trying to cross back across no man's land under the constant clack, clack, clack of all the machine guns in the area pointed right in their direction. Did not end well. Now the gates of the Ulster Tower were closed, so we hopped the wall and had a jeff about, then climbed over the side fence and plodded over the ploughed field to the Mill Road Cemetery. It was pretty, I was pretty pooped. I mean, understandably fatigued from the marathon, but also from the ascent of the cemetery. From what I understand, the Ulsters ran from the edge of Thiefel Wood right up to the top of the hill, through gunfire, grenades, artillery, shell holes, barbed wire, mud, corpses, cadavers, all that. From my limited orienteering skills... It looks like the Schwaben Redoubt would have sat a bit behind the current tower, maybe even further up the hill behind Millwood Cemetery. Quite the climb either way. But to skip forward uh, just a bit, we headed to the Thiefel Museum to where the memorial is located. Now, the museum was closed by the time we got there, but it had this small year-by-year timeline display with some chosen highlights. And it was pretty cool. And on one display, they showed the elevation of the hill the ulcers charged up. The German front line was maybe only 100 metres from where the 36th ran out of the wood, for they ran, not walks, you know, they're not daft. But the first objective, the Schwaben Redoubt, was maybe 800 metres away, and the climb was 40 metres up. Now, I'm not sure the actual incline ratio of the entire hill, but the first cut was the steepest, and those pesky Germans knew how and where to build the fences, alright? To put this into context, right? 
Idu Hill runs near Scrabble Tower and Arts. It's a hell of a hill, leads right up to Scrabble Golf Club. Not that I get that far as we run for two minutes from the bottom, but the hill isn't mild at first, and then it really rises this incredibly harsh climb. I do it in full running gear, and the hills are roads with concrete with very few holes or cracks. It's maybe about 50 metres up and a distance of 400 metres, but like I say, the first bit is easy enough, and then it turns, and that's the real hard bit. And I'm smashed by the end of it, and I'm quite fit right now. I'm hardly more fire like, but I'm in decent nick, yet I was broken. You're pretty much panting away thinking what the feck am I doing on a cold Tuesday evening up here but then I'm not carrying a rifle or a pack or dodging bullets or bombs or scrambling over barbar fences through trenches or mud or body parts I mean I don't know how fit the guys were but they must have been training hard damn hard as for them to get up that hill to breach the German lines then to get to the Schwaben redoubt and hold it is incredible even on just a purely physical level let alone having to shoot to kill or be killed the mental fortitude to see your friends getting shot and shot at and to keep going for king and country or for your loved ones or for your comrades or even for God whatever your motivation it blows my mind Talking about mental fortitude though, we're going to have another aside here, right? After walking around the exhibition, we headed to the memorial. And Potsy, he was like totally in the World War One way at this stage. He was posting his Facebook story when he noticed this comment in his timeline from a guy needing help saying he was thinking about killing himself. Now, before I go on, if you're ever feeling like that, please, please, please speak to other people about how you feel and why. Because you can be so sure that you're not alone in feeling that way. And there are so many people out there that have contemplated doing the same thing, possibly for the same reasons. So please talk to someone. Now, Potsy being the dead-on cat that he has made a few calls and helped get the guy some company. And thankfully, he decided against such an extreme course of action. And the irony, if that's the right word, wasn't lost on us as we were walking through a monument to thousands of war dead. And coincidentally, it also ended up being World Suicide Prevention Day. I mean, that's just life being life, isn't it? The memorial, by the way, for the French and Commonwealth troops is massive, huge. It's even larger than the Menin Gate, with maybe twice as many names etched into its huge walls. It's so big that it's almost like something out of Jason and the Argonauts, and I half expected an iron cyclops to come strutting around the corner and try to take my golden fleece. When you walk through the memorial, the far side is a graveyard. And on the left section you see the French graves, with their wooden crosses compared to the right side with the Commonwealth gravestones carved from white Portland stone, and they just look immense. There's something creepily beautiful about them. Again, it's not a criticism of the French, but in my opinion, the stone just looks vastly superior to the wood, and it gives the graveyard a really a really plush aesthetic. Now upon leaving the Oster Museum, you can see the Oster Tower off in the distance. We took a photo, but you really can't see the extent of the hill, which sort of sucks a bit, but it also made me wonder what it would have been like to watch the battle from there. To see the black ants scurrying up the hill, through the smoke and the explosions, and seeing some stop, some move on, and some never to move again. To think all that death for a shitty wee field. That's classic potty quip number three. War. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again, y'all. So after all the driving and graving, we went back to the hotel. We were kind of weary from, you know, the days travelling and like the generals in high command, we decided to tuck into a nice steak and some lovely French red wine. It was butte-like, but totally deserted. Especially in the second bar called the Highlander. We were staying in Albert, which is a town near Thiefville. And this bar was named in remembrance of the Highlanders, and especially the Hearts Football Club, Hard of Melodian, that is, the Jambos, currently sitting at the top of the Scottish Premiership, by the way. 
The bar lady didn't speak English, and the only other punter. He couldn't have been more stereotypically French. He looked really, really like the guy from the Simpsons episode. You know the one where Bart goes on an exchange trip, and he's treated like a slave and made to crush grapes? You know that one? The main guy who, like, takes him in? Well, his doppelganger was sipping white wine from a tiny glass and smoking rollies. Grubby we get, like, if ever I saw one. But the lady understood what beer was, so we had a few of those. And then when I went to the toilet, she was like, she like waited outside to pounce on me brandishing a sharpie for me to sign the heart's flag and the Scottish saltire that were on the walls during her considerable downtime due to only having three punters in the bar she like just sat there watching an omnibus of Mylene Farmer songs and she's some sultry French Canadian lady off of the 80s I think so me and Potsy had a bit of crack and did an interview uh, just me asking Potsy some questions, called Potsy Q's, you know, it was a bit blockoed and it sounded great at the time. We have a few excerpts following up here, but the audio could be better as it's background soundtrack by the aforementioned Mylene Farmer, but have a listen as I'll be asking questions after. Here we go. Who fought in World War One? Come on. As in, like, who fought the, who were well, the, the nations? It was the, basically the German Empire. You know, Austro-Hungarians versus the uh, Russians and the uh, British Commonwealth, laterally the Americans, That's from my understanding. Okay. Were the French involved? <laughs> well, natural. <laughs> <laughs> nice get out, nice work, nice work. I mean, uh, a few oh, belts, a few Belgians, just, couple for, of them. just for, just for good measure. They kind of let them right through, didn't they? Do whatever you like. They waved them past. Yeah, <laughs> just let you know, Potty is just learning about this history, so we're all good, we're all good. He knew nothing about World War One apart from what Bonner taught him years ago. But we're all right, right, okay, right. When did it break out? When did the war start? 1914, although the exact date, I'm not... Uh, no, that's good, the year's good, the year, I'm very happy with you. Uh, and why? Oh, the it's blatantly obvious. <laughs> the, there was there was an assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand before before he uh, before, before he before he became a band. He was assassinated. It's not that guy. Along with his good lady wife. Okay. By, by who? Uh, by whom? By the uh, Serbian Serbian gentleman, Mister uh, Mister Princep. What was his first name? It's like Gustav or... Weirdly, weirdly... <laughs> or your, your real name, which isn't Dr. Potts, might actually help you out. First three letters, your real name. It's like... Uh, Gavriel or something. There we go, Gavrilo Princip. Yeah, okay, right. So, where did the Germans first attack? Well, that is a, that's a doozy. Into Belgium, I think, wasn't it? Or or into or into France. It was either Belgium or France. <laughs> well, they kind of they kind of just walked through Belgium. So yeah, yeah, you kind of I get you there. I get you. Well done. You've covered both bases. Uh, who fought at the Somme? Oh, who didn't fight there? Like it. That was a trick question. You nailed it. it was, You've learned a lot today. It was a uh, very multinational uh, attack. Obviously, on the one side, in the red corner, we had the Germans. In the blue corner, who did you have? We had uh, on the northern side of the British troops. They were only supposed to be there in a supporting role because this was agreed in December. 19- Somebody's been reading Wikipedia. In December 1915, it was agreed that the French should bear the brunt of the Somme offensive. However, because of the attack on Verdun. 
in February in 1916. The meat grinder. In, incidentally, that uh, the British ended up supplying most of the, uh, the the casualties. I would say troops, but they were always from the very inception of the plan. They were all going to be casualties. I do have to say at this juncture, he is not reading from Wikipedia. However, he has just read from Wikipedia <laughs> before this interview. <laughs> So he may be remembering some facts, but well done him anyway. Uh, okay, right. Can you confirm what you said to me earlier? That you thought it was a river valve? And what did yeah. that mean to you? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I thought from from being in school, you were taught about the, there was a battle along the River Somme. And just in, in my, you know, naive mind, my thought was when you saw battles in the old, old ages, it was people firing arrows from one side of the river to the other and then crossing over. I had assumed that there was machine guns on one side of the river, machine guns on the other side. You shot your machine guns to the other machine gun, people didn't shoot back, and then you crossed over, and that was it. Hooray! We have won. It was all a happy party. Needless, needless to say, I learned that was. Somewhat, Not quite the case. Somewhat different. Yeah, you've slightly downplayed in, the in battle real, of the song. Mildly. And, and today learned out, learned that in, in actual fact you were just fighting for several hundreds of meters of shit, shitty farmside, <laughs> shitty countryside. Possibly yeah. slight, slight wet grass. <laughs> yeah. Wet land yeah. of some sort. Okay, right. Um, who drank all the rum? Well, I'll be there. Like good old lads from the old 36th Ulster Division. And why were they drinking rum? Because that's what we do back home. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> uh, what do you know about the Ulster 36th on the 1st of July, <laughs> apart from they were drinking rum? Well, they actually had a, they had a fairly decent plan and that the night before they went out and did some prep work and uh, they cut down the German defences to aid their swift attack the next morning. Hence the rum the night before, giving the old Dutch curries to go out and perform, say, barbed wire snipping. Nice. Uh, and uh, then the next the next morning, it was all hands to the pump as they charged up the hill into a wall of lead. But did they break through the wall of lead? They did. Where did they get into? And uh, they got into the like show-free or show-free redoubt. And then decided that they didn't like it there very much, so they ran back down the hill, and then ran back up it again. <laughs> Slightly facetious, but yes, good point. Schwab and out, and yes, um, yeah, they maybe didn't run so far back because they all got cut down. But yes, okay. Uh, uh, what other famous battle was fought on the first of July? Ah, a discussion we've had before. This goes back. Predates the Battle of Somme <laughs> oh, by, like by you know, some, some, some many many yeah, centuries, yeah, maybe two and, a, two and a half centuries. But the the Battle of the Boyne actually was uh, fought on that exact same day. Well, as an avid listener of I, Reverend I think, History, I assume you would know that. I'm oh, glad you came to the fore there. Obviously, I'll say indeed. Right, okay. Uh, where else did the Ulsters fight? Throughout World War One, anywhere they were told to. Yes, such as, such as I think they were involved in the third battle of uh, Ypres. Maybe. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. That was certainly one. Um, do you know any of the names of any of the sites? Uh, that would be no. No, you I'm do. Cause, you do because we were there earlier today. Israel. Oh, you were there earlier today. Uh, is this the? Uh, 
It was passion deal. It was a battle of pawn form as one. Well, no, it wasn't a battle of pawn form. It was a battle of Langmark. Battle but of it, Langmark, it occurred yeah. around pawn form, yes. But we also went to, you know, the place where the mines had all blew up? And there were the Versailles, Fresenberg Ridge, remember? They were beside the uh, Irish 16th. Remember that? Messine? No. Messine, yes. You know, just obviously slipped my mind there. Absolutely, absolutely. Did very well. Put too much other stuff in there. Oh, God, yeah, it's cramped. Three days ago. Plus, he did a marathon. Remember, guys? Did a marathon. Um, Okay, so I've kind of given this one away. What about the the Irish 16th? They fight in the song? Oh, they sure did. Where did they fight? Side by side. No, 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 they did not. <laughs> they fought in Genshin <laughs> and Guilmont in September, many months later. Literally side by side. Side you by side ish. Side by side. Ish. Uh, Solid. Side by side in yeah. yeah. Uh, so the next question is what happened in Messine? Who fought side by side? <laughs> we'll skip past that one. Uh, who was Francis Ledgewick? Oh, I'm glad you asked this one. Yeah. <laughs> Just Frankie, read, as you yeah, know him as. I was just reading on the plane on the way over because I do like to recite poetry from time to time. I'm known to be quite <laughs> well known around Bangor. Yeah, well known to be verbose about that sort of thing. But yes, he was a very well known poet. Uh, he's an Irish nationalist, if you must know. So he fought oh. for the the Crown forces during the uh, during the, uh, the the First World War, and unfortunately. Uh, was killed uh, in and around uh, Ypres <laughs> during, at some stage, around you know, 1917. Would you like to elaborate? Le- oh, left a great legacy. Would you like to elaborate on that legacy? Like, what is your favourite Francis Ledwick bomb? <laughs> and you're reciting in the play on the way over. <laughs> there was one... Uh, it begins with an S. I think it's, I think, uh, well, just, because of the, 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 the moment has just overtaken me with just, you know, emotions. Great fun. But, uh, yes. It has been a knowledge bomb over the yeah, weekend. But, but there's, certainly, uh, there's certainly several poems with several different titles that I'm, that I'm aware of. So as you ran along the battlefields of Flanders mm-hmm. uh, yesterday during your marathon, 26.2 miles. Did Francis Ledgewick and his works enter your head at any point? Oh, he certainly sustained me during my moments of darkness. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can you tell me who was Major Willie Redmond? He was um, a soldier yes. in the British Army who was mortally wounded uh, during uh, engagements in Belgium and was carried off the battlefield by a, uh, uh, he was a Roman Catholic man, I believe, he was carried off the battlefield by a man who turned out was in the Loyal Orange Lodge, and they struck up a bond on that fateful day, and the, uh, the uh, Orange man wouldn't leave him uh, after carrying him off the battlefield, and actually, unfortunately, Major Redmond succumbed to his injuries and uh, did not ever see the green fields of Ireland ever again. Well, what's unique about his grave? Do you know, he is actually buried again. Really pleased you asked that question because we, we visited there not even a few hours ago. <laughs> there is a lovely, lovely gravesite. I believe it's called the the uh, was it the Lorse 
uh, uh, something hospital, Norsk hospice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure in the exact or, pronunciation. Or Norsk, Norsk hospice. Norsk, Norsk hospice. Norsk, yeah, Norsk. Yeah, there's, there's many um, ways to pronounce it, but yeah. Fantastic. Uh, Commonwealth Graves, so they do a fantastic job, by the way. Sonic Donald Trump, they do a fantastic, fantastic job. You do a fair super, like Trump. Super, like Trump. super, super, super job. And um, uh, Major Revan is buried out, out with the, uh, the the grounds of the um, the graveyard. And why is that? Because um, his family did not want him moved um, after the uh, graveyard was commissioned, which, you know, Mayor, which may be a fair call, it's uh, certainly up to them. Okay, who's do you know Willie Redman's brother? Who that was? He, I believe, from our conversations, was an, uh, an MP who was a, a very uh, vociferous advocate of uh, home rule. Oh, very good, very good. But about his name, his first name escapes me. John, John, Donald, John, Jr. Yeah, uh, do you have any relatives that fought in the war? Actually, yes, I do. I have, oh. uh, yeah. I have uh, a, uh, let me see now, it would be a great grandfather and a great uncle from, or would it be a great great grandfather and a great uncle? It would be, yes, maybe a great great grandfather and great great uncle. Yeah. Who yeah. were from Derry Gonley and uh, they were both underage and both signed up to the army in Enniskillen and uh, but, but at different times one was 15 and signed up and he was sent to the Somme and the other was 14 who when he went to sign up he gave his date of birth and the uh, he got confused and gave his real date of birth and <laughs> he, 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 um, amateur yeah the uh, enrolling officer told him to go and take a walk around the block and you know have a think again about his real date of birth so he came back with a correct answer which made him old enough to join up and he was sent away and then by chance one brother was coming back from the front in the Somme and the, uh, the, they bumped into each other on the way past. Excellent. And they both survived? As far as I know, yeah. Very yeah. lucky, very lucky. Very lucky. See, if both of them had have died you probably would do more about it. Well, you know, yeah. you know. the family might have something to say exactly, about that. Exactly. <laughs> you might not have been here today. <laughs> yeah. Your great exactly. grandfather, that exactly. line may have ended. Oh, God, I'd be here on my own. <laughs> we are in a bar in France called the Highlander, a hearts bar. It's very exciting. Um, okay, here's the big question Who won? Who's the um, big winner? In my opinion, well, nobody really won. Okay. Because, you know, the end of the end of the First World War essentially immediately gave rise to the start of the Second World War. You know, which very is deep. very deep and meaningful because obviously there was the Would you like to elaborate? there was the Treaty of Versailles, there was reparations, there was all sorts of things like that which gave rise to you know German National Socialism, which you know lurched a little bit too far to the right in political terms and henceforth all the uh, problems of that. Of that what I remember from history class is they always, they always blamed on proportional representation, which was, you know, all these wee parties get, you know, all these votes and then Hitler and all come in. But then I've recently found out that Northern Ireland also did proportional representation at that time, which is fantastic. Yeah. So no wonder our country's <laughs> fucked up. But yeah, I would actually say America the winner because they paid for the war on both sides because they're fucking cunts. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>
Thank you, Galvin. Right. Sorry, sorry. Thank you, Dr. Boss. Didn't want to out you there. Just glad to be here. Didn't want to out you as your real name. Although I think I did it with Gavrilo Brezep here first room. Anything you'd like to add before you go? We just have had a, a lovely few days in France and, you know, not being a huge history buff beforehand, I was just saying to Nick earlier on that I, it makes a huge difference when you see it, you know, up close and personal. Really, uh, you know, it does, you know, makes it hit home. Notably, you've taken, you've taken a lot more photos today than yesterday. But oh, yesterday, well, yesterday was marathon day, so probably, probably a bit wrecked. <laughs> you know, one of the interesting photos is he's recovering. Yeah, just surviving. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yesterday. getting through the day. But yes, well done your marathon time. Fantastic work to finish. And uh, likewise. Nah, no question. So don't worry yourselves on Julie. We sat there, had a few more pints, asked for a taxi and uh, a last number running that night. I mean, it was 10 o'clock, but still no one was about. So we thought I will saunter home to the hotels, 20 minutes, all the shutters and houses were closed. I mean, what is up with these mainland Europeans? There was no one at the hotel either. But we did see a sign for a discotheque. But it was only open on Saturday night. And this was a Monday. Just different world, like I'm telling you. And the good thing is we woke up refreshed from a good night's sleep and headed for Thiepville with Neoster Tower, hoping for a tour. But alas, despite being closed on the Monday, there was only one woman in the place making sandwiches, so uh, no touring for us. I mean, to be fair to them, I think they had had a really busy few weeks with the British Legion activities and like remembrance services they attend. But... I was still a little disappointed, but again, it's just another reason to go back. They still, uh, we got to see the inside of the Ulster Tower, which is a replica of Helen's Tower in Bangor, the Clandy Boy Estate, where many troops trained before they shipped out. Now, it's stuck in their memory. Some say it's the last thing they saw as they sailed out, but to me, that would mean Scrabo Tower. So I thought maybe they had the wrong tower, but um, they don't. I think it's maybe more to do with the trees, weren't there back then, so it was more visible than it is now, but who knows. But the cool thing is that tower means quite a lot to me. It's for years I've walked and ran up there and taken the dog for a walk around there and all sorts of fun frolics, you know, in the forest. But, um, no, ask no questions. But it was cool. It's cool to see in a different location, you know. And it's brilliant that it means so much to so many now. But because we couldn't get the thiefful wood, we had time to burn. So we found this place called Loch Nagar Mine and we weren't really going to go there before. But we thought we'd take a, take a chance. It was called Le Grand Mine, as one of the signs said. There was another sign, though, one of warning. Sign it saying, this site is dangerous. All who enter do so at their own risk. You know, it's almost like that kind of warning your mate's parents would say, at, you know, at their Halloween party when you're a teenager. And they jumped out as you dressed as Mr. and Mrs. Dracula. And you generally had a thing for them ass. You're deaf heading in because, you know, she's totally clad in PVC. So you're getting in there. But there was no ma here. There was no lighthearted hostess. I mean, there's definitely no explanation as to what the danger was. I mean, a twisted angle I can live with. Losing a limb from an undiscovered landmine I'm not so happy about. Though, I'll have to blame it in the beer for me being so. As I'm kind of guessing... It was referring to the huge bloody crater that we had come to see and was a warning that maybe I shouldn't fall into it. It really is pretty big. And you can sort of have a clue as to its size by Potsy's words upon seeing it. Like his, his mouth was agape and his eyebrows were raised as he uttered the term Ka-fucking-boom. Which is classic Potsy quip number four. 
It all started as the Brits had the idea of burrowing explosive devices beneath the Schwabenhoe, which sounds like a Bavarian prostitute, but it means Schwabian height. The charge was detonated on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. The mad bastards dug two trenches simultaneously, like they were racing each other at first, but then had to slow down, take it easy as they approached the German lines for fear of being discovered, even taking their shoes off to make less noise. They worked in pairs, one would use a bayonet to really delicately scrape out some dirt, whilst the other would catch it, like some kind of ninja badgers. All the while under the anxiety that at any moment the Kaiser's tunnels could come through the very walls at them. There was a scene in Piggy Blinders, a, a, a TV show with numerous nods to the ulcer and its history, but the scene portrays how it must have felt to be subterranean. You know, cold, cramped, claustrophobic, confined in a tiny space with danger and death not but inches away. Alluding to this into the general horrors of war, uh, one of the CWGC placards at the Lochnagar mine has a quote from Sergeant H. Green about the unseen scars of war. He says, quote, No man, however he may talk, has the remotest idea of what an ordinary soldier endures. And he's right, we really can't. I mean, the word endure is key, and it beautifully illustrates the futility in trying to be empathetic. I've seen many war films, played numerous iterations of Call of Duty and Battlefield, even been through an arduous training week with the Royal Marines, but I still can have no idea what it's like to live at war. So close to death every single day. It reminds me of Mike Tyson's quote that, you know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. In the sense that we all have an assumption of what things are really like until the fit hits the shan and you actually have to deal with reality. And as we stood in the edge of that mine, just looking down into it, you just realise there's no way you can appreciate what happened here. Not to any reasonable extent anyway. But sure we'll try, will we? The mine itself was detonated at 728 July the 1st, 1916. Just as the officers would have been charging uphill. It was packed with 60,000 pounds of ammo. That's about the weight of 200 average sized men. And was laid 53 feet below the surface. Which is about the depth of about 10 men standing on each other's shoulders. It created a crater measuring 333 feet across to 70 feet deep and you could fit two British football pitches in the crater side by side. The debris rose some 4,000 feet in the air which is about 200 times the McKee clock and banger or about 10 times the height of the Ulster Tower to give you a less colloquial analogy. Now, can you imagine seeing the clumps of earth blasting up and off into the sky? Must have been amazing looking. Probably not so cool when you see them coming back down. And couple this with a boom so loud that it was reportedly heard in London and was for a whole year so the loudest man-made noise ever made, only to be beaten the next year by the mines in the scene. It's estimated that over 300 Germans went from chilling out to absolute disintegration in seconds, became ashes and dust in an instant. Yet it did not prevent huge casualties in the British 34th Division, around 20,000 of them, many from Scottish, Irish and Northern English regiments, possibly because the generals overestimated the effectiveness of the blast on enemy morale and mortality. Now, as I'm wanted to do, I'll take a slight aside here. If you picture the crater as being roughly circular, then there are walkways around a perimeter and offshoots away from the mine, the placards that tell you facts and stories. Like, really interesting stuff. Being a bit of a geek, as I'm sure you may know, a couple of potsies and you found World War One. we just had to read them all, really soak up everything we could. Some uh, are about the battles that occurred in the area or the mines themselves, or even people affected. We sort of both arrived at one, telling the story of Roy Bailing and his bestie Alfred Moxham. There were a couple already there, two women. And I nodded him, hello, and got one back. In a German accent? I'll not lie, it took me aback. You know, Germans being there, all casual, like nothing to happen out of the ordinary. I mean, is that weird? 
is that a strange reaction? Probably on my part it is, as obviously they have their dead there too. I mean, there has to be two sides to make the war. At least two sides. And I'm no Germanophobe. I mean, I know a few Germans. They're dead on. And sure, the manager of my beloved Reds is one. It's just in that situation, where their relatives could have fought mine. I just wasn't expecting it. Yet there we were, remembering together, in our own ways. And I suppose, as Harry Patch, who was the longest surviving British veteran of the Great War, said, The First World War, if you boil it down, what was it? Nothing but a family row. That's what caused it. Tisn't worth it. Too true, Harry. Too true. On the Gilmo, which is a small finish aligned in the minds of many with Gonshi, which is a village about a K up the road. In early September 1916, both were liberated by the heroics of the Irish 16th Division, mere months after the Easter Rising. A unit full of nationalists in British uniforms. What would they have been thinking, knowing that the Germans had supplied the weapons for the Rising? Was Ireland betraying them by seeming to side with the Germans? Or were they maybe betraying Ireland by siding with the Empire? What about the other Commonwealth troops? Would they be suspicious that the old paddies might turn? That they wouldn't do their duty for king and country? That they didn't see old Georgie boys their head of state? It would surely have been in the back of the minds of some. On December the 18th, 1917, four Irishmen deserted to see Germans and sent word back. To all good Irishmen of the 16th Division, Dear chums, you are all goddamn fools to be staying there in those dirty trenches. The Germans are the nicest people we ever met. Now, despite this exultation of the enemy, it seems that whilst many talked about desertion, few actually did. The threat of execution was probably quite a potent deterrent. Also, some would have clung to the words of John Redmond, Big Willie's brother. In a rousing speech to the Irish volunteers at Woodenbridge, he said, It would be disgrace forever to our country, and a denial of the lessons of our history, if young Irishmen confined their efforts to remaining at home to defend the shores of Ireland from an unlikely invasion, and shrinking from the duty of proving upon the field of battle that gallantry and courage which have distinguished your race all through its history. By distinguishing themselves as true warriors and defenders of the realm, he hoped that home rule would be granted in recognition. Either way, it did not prevent nor hinder hard-fought victories at Gilmo or a week later in Gonshi, where the Irish fought with great vigour and valiancy, taking the objectives that were their tasks, but not without casualties. Almost four and a half thousand of them, with maybe a quarter of those being fatalities. It must be known here that both battles are smaller parts of the Somme offensive, a battle which, surprisingly to many, lasted much longer than just the one day we usually hear about. Now in Gilmore there is a memorial to the 16th, a Celtic cross complete with an Irish clover, erected just over 90 years ago. The inscription reads, In commemoration of the victories of Gilmore and Gonchi, September the 3rd and 9th, 1916, in memory of those who fell therein, and of all the Irishmen who give their lives in the Great War, R.I.P. This includes Irishmen from all four provinces, and at one point involved a bayonet charge. I mean, can you imagine having to do that? You have all these bombs and bullets and numerous different ways to take human life from a distance. But you end up having to go right up close and personal and ram a steel blade into the chest of a fellow human. Like it was 1066 or something. Hack and slash in the modern era. I mean, no wonder so many soldiers can back different people entirely. Now, I was taking photos in the middle of the road. As you do, you know, not really giving a shit about the traffic because, you know, social media posts are way more important than health and safety. But upon running back to the car, I saw a strange street sign across the road. It was called Rue Ernst Junger. 
Now, some people might already understand why I was surprised to see that name, but if not, I will explain. He was a German. Not just any German. You're going to think I have things against Germans here. Obviously don't, right? But he wasn't just any German. Like the Allies had Kell and Nudwig and Hohen, the Germans had a literary figure named Ernst Jünger. He was an officer in the Great War and he wrote a book about his experiences called Storm of Steel, though I prefer the original German title, In Stagelfüttern. The Germans just have some cracking sounding words, don't they? Now, I haven't read the book, but I almost feel like I have due to the amount of times he's quoted and referenced. And do you know what? I'm going to order it off Amazon right after this podcast recording because I'm a mad bastard like that. Ernst, or Herr Junger, was wounded 14 times, but he still survived and was invited to see the French President Francois Mitterrand and German Chancellor Helmut Kohl holding hands at Verdun in 1984. That is a huge moment in frog-kraut relations, as Verdun was known as the meat grinder and led to over 300,000 deaths from around a million casualties. That is off the charts, isn't it? I've since found out that there is a monument to Ernst Junger erected by the local community. And the street parallel to this eponymous one is named Rue de la Cese div Irlande, which I'm sure I don't need to translate, but I will just in case. It's the Irish 16th Division Street. Now, I don't have any photos of these as I didn't know about them, nor did I get the Tom Gattles grave, as I totally forgot. But yes, repeat after me, just another reason to go back. And there are a few more interesting tidbits that I found out, and Kettle is kind of mildly involved in one. At the Battle of Genshi, uh, an 18-year-old Irishman called Lieutenant Emmett Dalton fought with Tom Kettle, although he was on a different part of the battlefield when Tom died. Six years later, he would have on his lap the head of the dying Michael Collins, whom we talked about in the last podcast. I just find that so incredible. Some people crave fame, longing to be part of something memorable, but never achieving it. And there's bloody Emmett being part of two massive, incredibly polarised events in Irish history. But the maddest of the lot to me and probably many of planter stock anyway, is that during a commemoration service over a decade ago, the free Presbyterian firebrand and first minister of Northern Ireland, he of the never, never, never fame, went to a service in the village of Gilmore. Yes, that's right. The late Reverend Ian Paisley broke with all the UP tradition and entered the Catholic Church. And do you know what? He didn't explode or combust or nothing. It's a fair play to the big lad. And it's strange for the village though, not Ian's visit, but the popu- it's a population of around about 120 to 200 people. And they love Ireland. I mean, proper love Ireland. Probably have tattoos of it and all. And they love what Irish men did for them. Men like Thomas Hughes and John Holland, who both won VCs, but for so many years Ireland's been all, nah, not us mate, you must have read that wrong because we're Republicans, we didn't fight for Britain. But that's changing. And it's cool, because over the last few years it seems like people in Ireland have started to realise just what their ancestors did there. Like a patient coming out of some sort of rebel in just coma, to realise that there is more to nationalism than just being staunch. Which isn't an insult to nationalists, more a nod to the fact that history is never black and white, it's never good v evil. And we know that, don't we, here? Because we're woke as fuck, aren't we? War. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing! Say it again, y'all! Now sometimes when I want to feel all pretentious, I wonder what these guys we've talked about would really think if they saw the world today. They left behind families and friends, everything they had really, to go and fight for king and country, to impress a monarch so as to either earn the right to remain in the empire, or to deserve to depart its clutches, or some maybe weren't even political and just had nothing better to do. But what would they think of today's society? 
All the trans, gender fluid, rainbow waving, cake munching, Brexit bashing, terrorism glorifying, abortion repealing, Sri Lankan holiday and non record keeping, rape allowing politicians and political entities that exist today. It must be so different from when they grew up. Some good, some bad, but also very different to what they would have known. Maybe they would have loved it. Maybe they would hate it. Maybe they would just be like the silent majority and ply on my life while the extremes cause most of the issues. But it's good to consider it. Consider what they fought for. They were the ones that died for us. And I'll finish with a small anecdote about my great uncle Jimmy as an example. Though not much is known of him. No photos have been found, no stories remembered, barring hazy recollections of some old tale from even older people. As I've said before, I'm the youngest son of the youngest son. So very far removed. He died almost 80 years before I was born. He's like a ghost figure. Not a famous poet or warrior. No songs nor tall tales have been written in his honour. But through the experiences of the likes of Willie Doyle and Willie Redmond, we know some things about him. And I went as far as to get a report compiled on him by a guy called Michael Nugent, which is at WW1Research on Twitter. It's really thorough. It's quite general in parts, showing war records and trip movements on a bigger level, but there were a few specific things. And one I particularly liked was a record that showed that he was in debt when he died. It was £3, 11 shillings and 8d. Now, I didn't have a clue what they did, so I asked mum and dad, and they didn't have a clue either. So I googled it, and it equates to around about 200 quid of today's money. So... I'm kind of assuming he might have liked a wee gamble, or a bit of a drink, or both. And do you know what? I hope he did. As a 19-year-old in the battlefield of World War One, I, I mean, if that was me, I think I'd be hoovering up all the poppies too. Anything to cope. May even have found God, thanks to Old Willie. Who knows? Do I have a point? Not really. But it was interesting that the war office paid off his three pounds of debt, even a couple of pennies remaining, which I'll happily pay. You know, in memory to great Uncle Jimmy, who you never did know. But see if you're having a drink later, or a spliff, or just hanging out in your favourite chair. Why not grab some culture by the balls in this near reading of a war poem, and picture what it was like back then. And have a look around you, at your kids, friends, family, loved ones, whoever. Enjoy it, and embrace it. Think about what these people did so we could live, and be happy that you're not in the trench. Balls are muffed deep in mud and blood. Do you know what? It's kind of just occurred to me that this is also propaganda of sorts. So maybe ignore everything I've said. As always, it's your call. Anyway, we'll, we'll play out here and go full circle. I'm going to use a bit of scooter to the found in Creative Commons. It's only about 21 seconds, but it's built there. And it's I'm raving, I'm raving. Enjoy. Laters. I'm raving till the sweat drops off me. Good for you.